When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to Hit Parade, a podcast of pop chart history from Slate Magazine about the hits from coast to coast. I'm Chris Melanfi, chart analyst, pop critic, and writer of Slate's Why Is This Song Number One series. On our last episode, we talked about Taylor Swift's country years, which are now being revisited in her 2021 re-recording of her 2008 album Fearless. Long before Swift made a deliberate move toward pop music, she was bringing young fans to her country music and appearing in youthful, mainstream spaces like the MTV Video Music Awards. In 2009, Swift arrived at the VMAs with the song and video, You Belong With Me, that was about to be the most played U.S. radio hit and the winner of a Moon Man trophy. But that win was where the trouble started. If the song, You Belong With Me, was spunky, its video was more so. A fully realized depiction of its high school story, with Taylor playing both the mousy nerd pining for her handsome male friend and the bitchy brunette Queen Bee, whom he's currently dating. It was nominated for Best Female Video at the 2009 VMAs, and Swift's competition was heavy. Clips by Kelly Clarkson, Lady Gaga, Katy Perry, Pink, and, of course, famously, Beyoncé. And Taylor won. And that's when the incident, the one that immortalized the phrase, I'ma let you finish, happened. Now, most articles and video recaps that recount the Kanye West-Taylor Swift run-in at the 2009 VMAs zoom in on the moment that West takes the stage and takes the microphone away from Swift. I want to play Taylor's whole speech, well, what there was of it, before Kanye showed up, because it captures what the stakes were for Swift and for country music that night. Her best female video goes to Taylor Swift. Thank you so much. I always dreamed about what it would be like to maybe win one of these someday, but I never actually thought that would happen. Uh, I sing country music, so thank you so much for giving me a chance to win a VMA award. I Taylor, I'm really happy for you. I'm going to let you finish. But Beyonce had one of the best videos of all time. One of the best videos of all time. Before I go further, I should say that I am on record at a prior live hit parade event agreeing with Kanye West on one thing. Beyonce whose video for Single Ladies was the one Kanye was coming to the defense of, was one of the best videos of all time. I'd even agree with Ye that Single Ladies is a better, more iconic video than You Belong With Me. Over the past dozen years, this incident has spawned reams of online debate, with smart commentators making arguments that favor both Kanye and Taylor. Even as most everybody agrees, West's gesture was unbelievably discourteous, including Beyonce, who gasped from the audience and later let Taylor finish her speech. And days later, in a hot mic moment, President Barack Obama, who famously called West, quote, a jackass. I'll just add a few specific points to this very chewed-over, intersectional debate. 
over an incident that not only started a decade of Swift versus West hostilities, but even indirectly led to Taylor re-recording her catalog this year. I'm in my room, it's a typical Tuesday night. I'm listening to the kind of music she doesn't like. And First off, this was the only category Swift's video was competing in. She had defeated Beyonce for Best Female Video, not Video of the Year, which, by the way, was won that year by Single Ladies, less than an hour later. Beyonce was not going home empty-handed. Single Ladies had already won Best Choreography and Best Editing. For another thing, Swift's look of shock when she won, a slack-jawed look that she exhibited at multiple award shows in her early years for which she was often teased and pilloried, might have been actual shock. The win was an upset, as You Belong With Me was the first country video in MTV's history to take any VMA's prize. Prior to this, only one other country clip had been so much as nominated, Shania Twain's You're Still the One, a full decade earlier. Even if the You Belong With Me video is more high school than Hayride, this was a moment for country and for genre breadth on MTV, a channel that, by the way, had once ignored most black music, but by 2009 had played even less country music. So at worst, you could call Taylor's win yet another example of a white person taking a prize that could have gone to a black artist. Certainly, many later did call it that. At best, MTV was sharing the night's wealth among fans of multiple genres. The narrative coming out of the Kanye Taylor VMA's incident was that Swift was an aw shucks bystander from country music, mystified by the new pop world she was stepping into. But the nuanced truth was that Swift had been savvily putting her music at the center of the pop conversation for months. As critic Jody Rosen later said in his profile of Swift for New York Magazine, quote, Swift's relationship to country is not merely a matter of careerist calculation. Nashville is a song town, and Swift is first and foremost a songwriter. If you ask Swift to reconcile her musical impulses, she gives an answer that has the virtue of being both true and politically savvy. I love country and I love pop, she told me. I love them both. Unquote. Swift rebounded quickly from the VMAs and took several more victory laps in the months to come. In late October, she issued a so-called platinum edition of the Fearless CD that came packed with a half dozen new songs. Thanks to heavy track downloads, all six new songs debuted within the top 40 in a single week. The biggest track, Jump Then Fall, even cracked the top 10. Later, in late January 2010, Swift took the biggest prize of all at the Grammy Awards, not just in the country categories, but in the top category of the night. And the Grammy goes to Taylor Swift. Nathan Chapman and Taylor Swift. Oh, wow. Thank you so much. I just, I just hope that you know how much this means to me and to Nathan, my producer, and to all these musicians you see on this stage, that we get to take this back to Nashville. All of us, when we're 80 years old, this is the story we're going to be telling over and over again. In 2010, how we got to win Album of the Year at the Grammys. Thank you. The same week that Swift won the big Grammy, a new song of hers made a massive Hot 100 debut. Today was a fairy tale which felt to many fans like a sequel to Love Story, entered the chart all the way up at number two, 
fueled by opening sales of 325,000 digital downloads. Today was a fairy tale, you were the prince. I used to be a damsel in distress. You took me by the hand and Fairy tale was notable for a couple of reasons. For starters, it was more embraced by Swift's young pop fan base than by country radio listeners. On the country chart, it peaked at number 41, the first single Swift released that charted better on the Hot 100 than on Hot Country songs. For another thing, Today Was a Fairy Tale was a soundtrack song from a frothy new Gary Marshall romantic comedy called Valentine's Day, in which Swift played a small comedic part. It was her first time acting outside of a music video. So uh, how did you guys meet? It's really funny, actually. Like, I was not into him at first. He used to shoot spit wads at me in Spanish class, which is like so junior high. But then one night I was brushing out my hair when I got home and I found this spit wad, but it was really a note. And it said, what's up? And I was like, that is so cute. And then I liked it. Swift's co-star in the film was heartthrob Taylor Lautner of Twilight fame. Taylor and, um, Taylor wound up dating for a couple of months around the filming of the movie, which provided fodder for a ditty Swift composed for her first stint hosting NBC's Saturday Night Live. Ha ha ha, ha ha ha, la la la, and if you're wondering if I might be dating the werewolf from Twilight. <laughs> I'm not going to comment on that in my monologue. La, la. By the time Swift hosted SNL, the general public had cottoned on to the in-joke that many of Swift's songs, including some of her hits, were thinly veiled romans a clef to both current and former love interests. Taylor Lautner was a current boyfriend, so he came off well in her monologue song. After they amicably broke up, Swift would later write about Lautner again, a year later, in the hit Back to December. Taylor Lautner got off lucky. What fans noticed more prominently was that Swift's true-life romantic tales were mostly kiss-offs, sometimes vicious ones. Country music has a long tradition of the wounded kiss-off song, from George Jones. To Travis Tritt. Well, here's a quarter. Call someone who cares. Swift blended this country tradition with the guided missile specificity of a rap era beef record. Her kiss offs were targeted, and they dated all the way back to her 2006 debut album. Her number three country hit, Picture to Burn, contained a now regrettable lyric about outing a faithless ex boyfriend. That high school beau was someone unfamous from Taylor's pre-fame days. Swift was much more openly rough toward her first post-fame paramour. You might think I'd bring up Joe, that guy who broke up with me on the phone, but I'm not going to mention him. In my monologue, hey Joe, I'm doing real well. Tonight I'm hosting SNL. That Joe was Joe Jonas, lead singer of boy band The Jonas Brothers. And Swift dispatched with him on her fearless platinum edition track Forever and Always. 
Was I out of line? Did I say something way too honest? Made you run and hide like a scared little boy. Swift's kiss-off songs were a twofer. They were a classic songwriter's trope, as they say, write what you know, as well as a clever, snarky way to spur fan involvement in the social media era. Taylor kept the tradition going in 2010 as she began writing her next album, which included a heart-rending tale of an age-inappropriate romance whose unsubtle title was Dear John. No one mistook who that song was about, least of all its target, guitarist and songwriter John Mayer, who dated Swift when he was 31 and she was 19. He felt wounded enough by the song that, a couple of years later, he wrote his own response to Taylor, Paper Doll. You're like 22 girls in one. Swift was also capable of firing back more generally at bullies and her own critics, as she did on a single from her next album, Speak Now. Not mincing words, the song was simply called Mean. Feminists and cultural critics lambasted Swift for perennially centering men in her narrative and for portraying herself as a damsel in distress. But even when she wasn't singing about a crush or a love gone wrong, giving voice to those who felt belittled by others was a powerful theme. Swift's youngest fans especially loved it. That theme didn't always work. At the 2010 MTV VMAs, both Swift and Kanye West performed, one year after the incident. Swift's new song, Innocent, was a gentle ballad clearly aimed at Kanye. She opened the performance by playing back his interruption of her acceptance speech from the year before, and even Taylor's most supportive critics found the song wan and patronizing. It's For his part, West took the stage with his own brash response to The Incident, a song called Runaway, whose unapologetic chorus went, quote, Let's have a toast for the douchebags. Let's have a toast for the assholes. Unquote. Unrepentantly rude or defiantly resilient? Critics said it was both. Let's have a toast for the douchebags. Let's have a toast for the But yet again, on the charts, Taylor was the ultimate victor. While Kanye's next album, the critically hailed My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy, opened at number one on the Billboard 200 with nearly half a million in first week sales, Taylor's new disc, Speak Now, more than doubled that. Speak Now opened to over a million copies in its first week, the first country album to do so since Garth Brooks's Double Live in 1998. The music industry was stunned by this feat. Billboard reported, quote, 
who said it couldn't be done? Don't feel bad if you were one of the many naysayers who had assumed the days of million selling weeks were over. Considering how album sales have dropped off a cliff since the early 2000s, huge sales frames are rare. But as we've seen with Taylor Swift, if you have crossover appeal to pop and country audiences, the wide age range of her fans, teens, tweens, and moms among them, it can happen. Unquote. Swift was now bigger than any one genre. But remarkably, unlike Shania Twain or The Chicks, she wasn't being spurned by the country audience, even after her massive crossover. Both Mine, the lead single, and Mean, the follow-up, reached number two on Hot Country Songs. Back to December, her Taylor Lautner memento reached number three, as late as the fall of 2011 and the winter of 2012, Speak Now was still generating country hits. Sparks Fly reached number one. Drop everything now. Meet me in the Kiss me on the Take away the pain. And Ours, a track from the album's deluxe edition, also topped the country chart. The stakes are high. Water's rough, but this love is ours. Even amid these victories, Team Taylor could tell country radio was going to become an ever greater challenge. Country had long been a male-driven format, but by the early 2010s, women artists were becoming positively scarce. In 2011, Women or woman-fronted bands topped the country chart less than one quarter of the year. In 2012, just over 10% of the year. Worse, not only were more of country's hitmakers male, the hits themselves were male-centric, with cookie-cutter lyrics about trucks, boozy lake parties, and pretty women in cut-off shorts. Welcome to the bro country era. No, baby, you can find me in the back of a jacked up tailgate, sitting there watching all these pretty things. Whether the chart toppers were by Jason Aldean or Jake Owen, girls smile when we roll by, they hop in the back and we cruise to the riverside. Never gonna grow up. Or by the so-called king of the bros, Luke Bryan. You're looking so good and what's left of those blue jeans. Trip a honey on the money, make it gotta be. These testosterone-fueled hits were becoming interchangeable. Even if bro country hadn't taken over, Taylor Swift's own songwriting was evolving in an ever more pop-driven direction. Increasingly, Taylor's new material demanded top 40 savvy production. But in the early 10s, pop was mostly electronic, not acoustic. Whether it sounded like this Tayo Cruz hit, or this Britney Spears hit. Or this Maroon 5 chart topper. Or all of the string of blockbuster singles by pop queen Katy Perry. What do all of these hits I just played have in common? All of them were either produced or co-written by a man from Stockholm, Sweden. We've discussed plenty here on Hit Parade. The guy who was going to take Taylor the last mile in her genre evolution. 
For her part, Swift was going to give as good as she got, delivering songs that fit the sound of modern electropop, but were all tailored. Once upon a time, a few mistakes ago, I was in your sights, you got me alone, you found me, you found me, you found me. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. After all her success, with her clout at a new peak coming out of Speak Now, Taylor Swift's next album could have sounded like anything. She was still writing sturdy acoustic style material, like the future number three country hit Begin Again. And you throw your head back laughing like a little kid. I think it's strange that you think I'm funny cause he never did. Or, by contrast, the album's lead track, State of Grace, sounded like arena rock in the style of U2. Swift's longtime producer, the versatile Nathan Chapman, produced both of these songs. But it was while he and Swift were working on what became the album's title track, simply titled Red. Loving him is like driving the moon Maserati down a dead end street. that they realized, even though the song sounded good with banjos on it, and that it had the bones and chord changes of country music, it still needed something extra. It needed the kind of punch that was the specialty of a maker of big top 40 pop hits. In other words, it needed a lift a sore. So, 
Chapman and Swift agreed that Big Machine label president Scott Borchetta should call in the biggest pop hitmaker of the past 15 years, Carl Martin Sandberg, a.k.a. Max Martin. Max Martin had already defined multiple eras of pop, As we discussed in our Britney Spears episode, Martin was largely responsible for the teen pop boom of the late 90s. He wrote and produced for Spears, Backstreet Boys, and NSYNC. Half a decade after that wave died out, Max came back with another wave of potent pop production, defined by artists like Pink, a revived Britney, and Katy Perry, and kicked off by Kelly Clarkson's seminal Since You've Been Gone. By the early 10s, Max and his stable of Stockholm songwriters were at the top of their game, having produced a wave of hits for everyone from Usher to Adam Lambert to Avril Lavigne. The knock on Martin was that many of his hits sounded like they could be sung by anybody. Indeed, that was what made his brand of maximalist pop such a chart juggernaut. But in Taylor Swift, Max Martin met a formidable songwriter in her own right, whose personality infused her compositions. Swift, Martin, and his co-songwriter Johann Schuster, better known as Shellback, wound up writing three songs together for the Red album. Martin and Shellback also produced them. I Knew You Were Trouble was a classic Swift Romana clef, a kiss-and-tell song about, it is widely rumored, her relationship with One Direction singer Harry Styles. But this kiss and tell sounded like no Swift song in history to date. Martin and Shellback threw everything at the track. As Vulture critic Nate Jones aptly put it, quote, from Kelly Clarkson verses to a roller coaster chorus to a dubstep breakdown. It shouldn't hang together, but it does. Then the thumping 22, a kind of sequel to Swift's earlier hit 15, celebrating a year she called the favorite of her adulthood, was similarly eclectic. Over Taylor's guitar strumming, Martin and Shellback layered dance-pop beats and swirling production on her vocals. But the standout of the Swift, Martin, Shellback tracks was one they wrote together after a conversation about Swift's many breakups. Taylor described one particular relationship to the two producers as, quote, break up, get back together, break up, get back together, just, ugh, the worst, unquote. Max Martin suggested they write about it, and he encouraged Taylor to make the verses conversational, as much talking as singing. We hadn't seen each other in a month when you said you needed space. What? Then you what Martin, Shellback, and Swift ultimately delivered sounded like what critic Ann Powers would later call pop punk a fist-pumping, snarky, girl-power anthem with a very wordy title, We Are Never Ever Getting Back Together. Sonically, it was totally new for Swift, yet lyrically, it couldn't have sounded more like Taylor, and it would become her first-ever number one pop hit. We 
Our Never Ever Getting Back Together arrived as the first single from Red in August of 2012, the summer of huge lovelorn pop hits like Call Me Maybe and Somebody That I Used To Know. It entered the Hot 100 at number 72, fueled by just two days of airplay, the fastest a swift single had ever been adopted by Top 40 Radio. One week later, after selling a stunning 623,000 downloads, a record for a female artist never ever hurtled from number 72 to number one. Within a few weeks, the Red Album would arrive to 1.2 million copies sold in its first week, 200,000 more than Speak Now had opened to. We Are Never Ever Getting Back Together, the nation's number one song, made Taylor Swift even bigger than she'd been before. And how did country radio, the format that had broken Taylor Swift, feel about her poppiest song to date. At first, they were excited. Many country program directors told Billboard magazine Swift was important to their format and had connected them with an impassioned young fan base. To ensure country acceptance, Big Machine put out a remix of We Are Never Ever Getting Back Together just for country radio. It replaced Max Martin and Shellback's synthesizers and drum machines with mandolin, steel guitar, and snare drums. I'm really gonna miss you picking fights and me falling for it, screaming that I'm right. And you would hide away and find your peace of mind with some indie record that's much cooler than mine. Out of the box in late August 2012, Never Ever made a big splash on hot country songs all the way up at number 13, one of the highest debuts in the chart's history. But it appeared the country audience wasn't as enamored as programmers were hoping. A week later, rather than climbing into the top 10, the song fell on the country chart to number 19. By mid-October, a month after Never Ever had finished its three-week run at number one on the Hot 100, the song had never topped its number 13 country debut, and it had slipped out of the top 20 entirely. It was Swift's first-ever officially promoted single not to reach the top 10 in country airplay. This was when Billboard gave Swift's song an unexpected lifeline. In the issue dated October 20th, 2012, the magazine announced a controversial change to its genre charts, R&B, Latin, and country, turning them into miniature versions of the Hot 100. This was driven by the industry's wholesale shift to digital consumption, both downloads and streams. Now, as long as a song qualified for one of those formats, its position on the Hot 100 would determine its ranking on the genre chart. And so, because We Are Never Ever Getting Back Together technically qualified as a country song and still ranked high on the Hot 100, On the rebooted Hot Country songs, it shot from number 21 all the way to number one. It wound up spending 10 weeks at number one on the revamped country chart, even though country radio wasn't playing it all that much. No matter what the charts said, country radio was now being much more choosy about which Swift songs it would play. Her follow-up single, the Max Martin Shellback production, I Knew You Were Trouble, was a number two pop hit that Billboard defined as ineligible for the hot country chart since so few country stations were playing it. That you never loved me or her or anyone or anything. Yeah. 
other tracks from the Red album, like Begin Again and the title track, were embraced by country audiences and did make the country airplay top 10. But organically, as the songs from Red took their turns on the charts, it couldn't help but feel like Swift was quietly, gradually breaking up with the genre that had launched her career. However, she did give country music one more for the road. In the spring of 2013, Swift appeared on Highway Don't Care, a duet with Tim McGraw. It was from Tim McGraw's new album, and one of the most acclaimed country singles of the year. Highway Don't Care reached number four on Billboard's main digital-fueled Hot Country Songs chart, and on the Country Airplay chart, which tracked the songs country radio stations were actually playing, it reached number one. Tim McGraw, the veteran country superstar that Taylor Swift had named her very first single after, way back in 2006, when she was 16 years old, he gave her one last victory lap on the country charts. It would be Swift's last country airplay number one song. And after 2013, no solo Taylor Swift song would appear in the country top 10 for the rest of the decade. If you're a follower of pop music, you probably know where the story goes from here. In 2014, Taylor Swift announced her next project would be her, quote, first documented official pop album, in her words. She went back into the studio with Max Martin, this time as her executive co-producer, as well as other new collaborators, like indie and power pop producer Jack Antonoff. The album would be called 1989, after the year of her birth, symbolizing her genre rebirth. And the album? Yeah, it did okay. Taylor Swift spent the rest of the 2010s as one of the biggest artists in pop. The 1989 album, which, by the way, opened to 1.3 million in sales, even bigger than Red, generated three Hot 100 number one hits, including Shake It Off, the witty follow-up single, a satire of her string of well-chronicled romances, Blank Space, And I'll write your name. And her beef song against Katy Perry, Bad Blood. Taylor wound up in a new round of beefs with her old nemesis, Kanye West. Oof, recapping that drama would take a whole other podcast episode. And so she, of course, referenced Kanye in her 2017 chart topper, Look What You Made Me Do. I don't like your little games. Don't like your tilted stage. Taylor kind of started rapping herself on hits like Ready For It. I see nothing better. I keep him forever like a vendetta. And she went deep into digital pop on kinetic hits like Delicate. Taylor's 
Taylor also came out as an unabashed LGBTQ plus supporter, finally moving past her fear of being too political, like her friends and forebears, the Chicks. And she sang about it on her 2019 bop, You Need to Calm Down. Country radio stations would play these pop songs very sparingly, usually not at all. But the country audience never quite forgot Swift's country heyday, as these stations continued to play her old hits in recurrent rotation. And when Taylor occasionally recorded something quieter and more contemplative, country stations embraced it. New Year's Day, a piano ballad that closed her otherwise hip-hop-fueled 2017 album Reputation, cracked the country top 40. I want your midnights, but I'll be cleaning up bottles with you on New Year's Day. As a songwriter, Swift also penned songs for other country acts, including Better Man for the group Little Big Town and Babe for country duo Sugarland. The Sugarland hit featured vocals from Taylor herself, bringing her momentarily back to the country top 10 in 2018. And in 2019, a tender ballad Swift wrote and performed with The Chicks, Soon You'll Get Better, brought both her and the trio briefly back to the country charts. It was The Chicks' first country hit in more than a dozen years. Ooh, I, soon you'll get of featured guests, Swift has a long-standing concert tradition of surprising her fans by bringing out very starry visitors from whatever city she's touring. The last time Taylor played Nashville, she brought out Faith Hill and Tim McGraw to sing, well, naturally, Tim McGraw. But, of course, Swift has not been able to tour since 2019, thanks to the COVID-19 pandemic. While she was locked down at home in 2020, the ever-industrious singer-songwriter made very good use of her time. She recorded two albums in a single year, a radical change from her normal schedule of a new album every two years. Titled Folklore and Evermore, the two discs were yet another sonic departure for Swift, a wash in the rustic sounds of Americana and indie pop. And, perhaps by happenstance, each album generated a song that would bring Taylor back to country radio, on her own, for the first time since the early 10s. From Folklore, the song Betty, reached the country radio top 40 and the hot country charts top 10. Betty, I know where it all went wrong. Your favorite song was playing from the far side of the gym. And from Evermore, the song No Body, No Crime, Swift's collaboration with the L.A. sister trio Heim also made the hot country top 10. It was still riding the country airplay chart just a couple of weeks ago. She says, I think he did it, but I just can't prove it. This gradual, quiet return to country music, without trying hard at all to sound country, has, one might say, brought Taylor's career full circle. It makes her new re-recording of her 2008 album Fearless that much more poignant. Fearless, Taylor's version, arrived less than a week before we finished this episode of Hit Parade, and it's rare that we play a song from the current number one album in the country. 
Actually, as I record this, it hasn't even been announced yet. But I am quite confident that by the end of this weekend, Billboard will reveal that Taylor Swift's re-recording of Fearless is the new number one album in America. I mean, why wouldn't it be? Literally every album Swift has released since the original Fearless has topped the charts. You sit in class next to a redhead Abigail and soon enough your best friends Taylor Swift is now nearly a decade and a half past when she wrote and recorded these songs. And she's more than twice the age she sings about in 15, a song that she's now recreated in her early 30s. In the song's lyrics, Taylor talks about the wisdom that comes with age. Quote, When all you wanted was to be wanted, wish you could go back and tell yourself what you know now. Unquote. Maybe the adult Taylor is telling the kid Taylor, the one who marched up and down Nashville's music row, trying to fulfill her dream, that she would indeed do that, and so much more. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Hit Parade. Our show was written, edited, and narrated by Chris Melanfi. That's me. My producer is Asha Saluja. Asha is also my producer for our monthly Hit Parade The Bridge episodes, available exclusively to Slate Plus members. In our latest Bridge episode, I talked to Rolling Stone journalist Brittany Spanos, a self-proclaimed Swifty who helps me go deep on Taylor Swift lore. To sign up for Slate Plus and hear that show and all our shows the day they're released, visit slate.com slash hitparadeplus. June Thomas is the senior managing producer and Gabriel Roth, the editorial director of Slate Podcasts. Check out their roster of shows at slate.com slash podcasts. You can subscribe to Hit Parade wherever you get your podcasts, in addition to finding it in the Slate Culture feed. If you're subscribing on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review us while you're there. It helps other listeners find the show. Thanks for listening, and I look forward to leading the Hit Parade back your way. Until then, keep on marching on the one. I'm Chris Melanfi. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.